This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very interesting episode discussing cardiac rehabilitation, post-exercise hypertension, and personalized exercise prescription. And what a guest we have for this episode. Our guest is working as a distinguished professor of kinesiology in the University of Connecticut. Earlier, she directed the Department of Health Promotion at New Britain General Hospital for 10 years. Her papers have been cited over 40,000 times. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, distinguished professor Linda Pescatello. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Ali, for your uh, nice introductory comments and allowing me to do this podcast with you today. Yeah, it's fully, fully my pleasure. Basically, you have also done personalized exercise prescription algorithms based on these, these studies and your knowledge. Could you tell more about those? Yeah, like everyone's career, if, if you stay in it long enough, which I have, it's an evolution. And um, again, my major advisor at the University of Connecticut always inspired his teachers to get involved with the American College of Sports Medicine. And my involvement began with a local chapter. I became involved nationally and I taught at certification workshops. They used to have, they no longer have them because they're done virtually and with electronic exams now. And never dreamed that one day I would be asked to be involved with the writing of the ACSM guidelines for exercise testing and prescription, which is the gold standard text for anyone conducting exercise program and exercise testing in the world. And in fact, now they've been translated to five languages. And so Dr. Walt Thompson uh, asked me to be an associate editor of the eighth edition. And then the stipulation was once you had experience as an associate editor, in the next edition, you could be appointed a senior editor, which I was. So I was also senior editor of the ninth edition. And in the eighth edition, I introduced the FIT principle of exercise prescription, which stands for the infrequency, intensity, time and type of exercise. And why I developed that principle is when I was teaching in the workshops for health fitness trainer, there was the exercise test technologist, the clinical exercise physiologist, I saw the students were very confused about what to do when a person presents with multiple cardiovascular risk factors, chronic diseases and health conditions. What do you focus the exercise prescription on? Because you can't focus it on all of the above. And so now, as you're aware, um, in 
each edition since the eighth edition and now position stands in the college and not just the college, other professional organizations frame the exercise prescriptions or the exercise plan or the exercise recommendation by the FIT principle. And that was a segue for me personally in developing personalized, tailored exercise prescriptions to maximize the health benefits for a particular chronic disease or health condition you're focusing on. And that aligned at the time with my work in genetics, um, again, with Dr. Paul Thompson. Uh, we did a lot of those studies and then, then the famous study I was involved in. So they kind of aligned. And we really thought genetic profiles were going to become part of personalized exercise prescription at the time. And as we've all learned, it's become much more complicated. But nonetheless, um, my interest in personalized exercise prescription evolved into my teaching because with the popularity of the ACSM guidelines, I made a decision in 2015 to bring my exercise prescription teaching in the classroom, the brick and mortar classroom, to online learning. And not only for our graduate students, but for professionals in the field throughout the country and the world now. And we have at UConn an online graduate exercise prescription certificate program that consists of three courses. The first one is the fundamental course where we teach this algorithm I developed. That's a stepwise approach people can use to prioritize, personalize, and prescribe exercise which we've given the acronym P3X, three P's and then exercise, um, to focus a fit exercise prescription to optimize the response of the prioritized risk factor or chronic disease and health condition. So they're introduced to that algorithm, otherwise also called a clinical decision support system. In the first class, that's the requirement for the other two. And then the other two can be taken in any order. And one of the classes specifically relates to chronic diseases and health conditions. And then the other class is special topics and exercise prescription. And, you know, every time I offer the classes, the topics rotate. We have invited guests, and one of my premises in putting this program together, which has become quite po popular, is that the students are learning from the best in the field. Because I, I do have guest lecturers, um, Carol Garber, who's a past president of ACSM, lectures on the exercise prescription guidelines for healthy adults. Mike DeShanes, who's been very involved in writing the resistance training recommendations for ACSM, 
provides a model on our module on resistance training. And then there's other experts from UConn that have graciously donated their time over the years. Uh, Dr. Jackie Van Hees talks about children and adolescents, and then Dr. Nancy Rodriguez, who's internationally known on sport nutrition, is also a guest lecturer. And, and so where that is all gone now is this algorithm I've spoken of to you. Um, UConn, I would say in recent years, is putting an emphasis on entrepreneurship and also acquiring grants like an STTR or SBIR and small business grants. And we are in the process, again, with the support of UConn and technology commercialization services, our office of research, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at UConn. We've all worked together that we're in the process now, fingers crossed, of taking this algorithm to commercialization in the form of a mobile app. And part of the people involved with that with me are my students over the years, um, which is our, nice that we can continue our collaborations. Um, Dr. Greg Ponza, who works at Harford Hospital, received both his master's and PhD um, with me as his major advisor. And Dr. Maggie Guidry was a student who graduated from kinesiology in 2004. And we're all working together on trying to bring this mobile application to market. Yeah, sounds sounds very interesting. And if if we talk a little bit about the algorithm, maybe it's easy to talk through the through the app that you are developing. So how much do you need basic information to fill in that you get get an output? Could you could you go stepwise? What what is asked first, and how does it go go from there? Ali, that's a a great question, and I would like to say up front that when the vision for the app is that it will take someone with little knowledge in exercise prescription to actually generate and produce a prioritized fit for a patient's cardiovascular disease risk factor that posing the greatest risk. And that's what we're testing out now. Um, so little training is needed. The intent of the mobile app for now is that it would be a professional in the field using it to give something to their patients or their clients. And it's evidence-based. It's evidence-based um, in terms of guidelines coming from the American College of Sports Medicine and also the American Heart Association that we've adapted. And, you know, again, as far as ACSM is concerned, for instance, I was one of the roundtable um, members that in 2014 produced what was called then the new pre-participation health screening recommendations for exercise that were published in MSSE. We've programmed I won't say app at this time, but the algorithm on a templated website that they answer a few questions 
and outspits the decision for medical clearance. Then we profile the patient or client's cardiovascular disease risk factors and plug them into an adapted version of the American Heart Association's Life Simple 7, and out comes the prioritized risk factor. Now, if there's a tie in risk, then we might have to go to the ACSM strategies for people that present with multiple chronic diseases and health conditions to break the tie. And then once the tie is broken and the chronic disease or CVD risk factor is prioritized, it's matched with the recommended fit exercise prescription for that particular risk factor. Um, and so it should not take long to complete. It obviously goes beyond you know, telling your patients to go for a walk, but it's not to gate, negate the importance of walking. It's just that that particular plan may, may need more detail to most positively impact the cardiovascular disease risk factor. And then, you know, the commercial potential we're excited about, but we still have to test this prototype in terms of will it be doing what we think it's doing. So that's what we're in the midst of testing right now. Yeah, so basically you said that at first you create the medical clearance, so basically that it's safe to do exercise at least in some form and and then you kind of find the best way and I think you earlier said that the idea is to maximize the health benefit could you clarify a little bit more is it maximize the health benefit in relation to risk or kind of amount of doing or how do you how do you define the maximizing I would say maybe another word synonym is it would improve the CVD risk factor being targeted to the greatest degree. So if it's blood pressure, you would get the greatest reductions in blood pressure by following this exercise prescription. Um, if it's glucose, the prescription might be slightly different, but they're it's evidence-based in that these are the recommendations that would improve the risk factor to the greatest degree. Now, whether that reduces risk over the long term, you know, now we're getting into these longitudinal studies that are beyond our capacity at this point in time. And I think you would just have to use the existent literature to show well, if we're improving the CD risk factor this much and the literature shows these reductions reduce morbidity and mortality, then the benefits can be extrapolated. Are you a medical doctor, physical therapist, personal trainer, or someone else helping individuals in making a change towards a healthier, better life? 
Imagine a behavior change tool designed for professionals like you to help your clients achieve better results and at the same time provide you with more income. Fibian is that tool. It offers an evidence-based way for health and wellness professionals to extend their services into coaching. The only thing your client needs to do is put a tiny Fibian device into their pocket for a week. The device collects objective physical activity data from your client. Fibian helps you to educate and coach your clients through this change towards a more active and healthy life. Strengthen your expert status. Distinguish yourself from the competition. Order Fibian now at Fibian.com. So the risk factor improvements in risk factor being targeted. How much do we know? I think usually it is that more intense you train, better it is. How much there is difference? You said that, for example, if the target is blood pressure, whether it's glucose, how much there is other variables than basically the intensity? I mean, and again, it has to be weighed. It's not just a simple um, rule of thumb the more intense you exercise, the greater the reduction. The most important thing is to keep exercising. You know, if you stop exercising, all those benefits go away. So it's a balance between personal preference. Um, maybe, again, where the person is in the disease process, and then the evidence-based exercise recommendations. And it's some balance of all of those in terms of how you would optimize the risk factor that's being targeted. But you also have to start somewhere. And, you know, our, our research has shown people don't know where to begin. And it's not to say the plan doesn't change as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. And and basically, many of our listeners or some of our listeners might be professionals who are creating training programs for people and maybe for people with uh, special conditions. So how do they use this algorithm? What is the best way to get these resources and how to use them? Could you Could you give guidelines for that? Yeah, well, what I would say, we're in development right now. So if if people are listening and they want to see in concept how this is going to work, we'd love to have them be in our study. Where we're evaluating right now the usabi- usability, feasibility on a very preliminary level on do they like it, do they want it, does it do for them what they feel they're lacking now. Um, and, and really, that is where we are. So I would just encourage anyone that's interested in this to contact me. And the first step would be to get their feedback on what they think about the tool. Yeah, sounds, sounds good. And and I, I assume this online course, that that's already online and in use. So who is it for and how people can take and what kind of certification they get doing it? Yes. Um, well, anyone with a bachelor's degree can enroll. It is three courses, three three-credit courses. So you would come out 
with a certificate from the University of Connecticut that you've completed these three courses in the exercise prescription certificate program. The type of people that take this program that we've had running now since 2015 would of course be our graduate students both at the master's and PhD level but when I first put this together the real audience we were trying to target are professional students that need more training in exercise prescription from some of the best in the world. <coughs> So the types of professionals we've enrolled over the years, physicians, physical therapists, occupational therapists, exercise science people, again, maybe getting their bachelors, but want to know more about this. We've gotten um, educators in higher education, personal trainers, and also there's a contingency of people that are in totally other fields like finance and they don't want to do that anymore they want to go back to their love and we've graduated a contingency of people changing careers and then some people it's a segue from one degree to the other so they use the certificate program to enhance their knowledge but other things I do um, for the students graduating from the program is I write them letters of recommendation, for instance. And there, there is one student now. Um, she came in with her PhD in education, curriculum development, had this love for exercise, took the certificate program, used that and my recommendations and others to acquire a DPT. And she is now an instructor of the undergraduate exercise prescription programs we offer at the University of Connecticut. And she's also pursuing possibly going into an academic career in some exercise related field. So it, it just, there's a smattering of people and um, that is one of my favorite part of teaching this certificate program is it is just so enhanced by the different perspectives. And I the, the people that don't have a background in exercise science are also oftentimes very nervous about coming into it. And sometimes they end up being the best students because they're so motivated to learn and they love the subject matter and they embrace it. So it, it's really been um, an enjoyable experience for me. And then the other thing that has happened, it's enabled me to blend my teaching and research that one of the requirements in one of the courses is the students write a systematic review. And I would say over the years about one fourth of the students take their systematic reviews to publication. They have presented their systematic reviews at professional meetings, including the American College of Sports Medicine. Yeah. And the journals they're published in are, are very, very good journals in our field. So there's also an opportunity for the students if they do want to learn more about research. That's also built into the program. Yeah, so sounds like an interesting program and very, very useful. Uh, I wanted to, before we finish, also ask some 
you have a long career, some career advice for the early career researchers. But before we go to that, do you have anything you would like to add into this uh, personalized exercise prescription discussion? No, I again, I want to thank you for your interest in allowing me to talk about all of this. And if there are people that are interested either in getting involved with the program or the research study I referred to, please give me an email um, and we'll take our conversations from there. That that sounds good. So so you have you have a long long career in academia and we have many early career researchers as listeners. What would be your advice for early career researchers how to build their research career? Yeah, that's a, a very good question and you know I do get that asked periodically and I mean one thing and I'm sure you've seen it as well and I I do say this to people um, you know for whatever the reasons life can get in the way people will change their careers much more frequently today than when I was coming up through the ranks and I have seen a lot of people come and go in the field and some of the people that have left very, very bright, um, could have succeeded at any level. And so why does that happen besides the typical things that can happen in terms of why people change their careers? The thing that has kept me in the field as long as it has, I, I think there's a couple things. The first is we get into the field for our love of sport and science. And don't underestimate um, how that can motivate you through the ups and downs of what we go through as any profession. And that you have this intrinsic love for what we're doing and what we're studying. And in some respects, we get to play and we get paid for it. (laughs) And there's not all types of professions that that you can um, say that. So I I think that's a real uh, plus of our profession. Um, I mean, the other thing, and I've been seeing very, very successful people, and I think one of the universal requirements beyond just this intrinsic love for what we do is they do work very hard. Um, It's not easy in that regard Um, but if you love to learn and and then obviously with me and going into academia I think another thing that motivates me is when you see students develop um, and then become established professionals in the field and it's not always easy to get there. I, I, there's, especially in graduate school, there are ups and downs. But if you have that goal, don't lose sight of it. And with some hard work, and then your mentors become very important too. And right alignment, um, it's a great field to be in. And people like, Obviously, I exercise a lot, and I have friends that exercise a lot, but they're not in what I do. 
and they get a little jealous because their job, you know, they, they put in the hours, but they clearly don't love it. And you said that it usually takes quite a bit of work, working hard. Do you have any tips working smarter or what things to con uh, concentrate, especially as an early career, there's usually quite many things you need to do. Can you maybe put less effort into some or how, how would you work smarter? See, again, I, I would say I'm speaking about academia right now because I did have other lives as we've talked about, but this has been my concentration for, it's hard to believe how long, but the last 20 or so years And when I first came to UConn, it was my, um, he was actually the dean at, at that time of the School of Allied Health. He really protected my time. And I learned from that. He kept my service to a minimum. It's, it's not to negate teaching isn't important, but we are a research one institution. And if you are going to be successful going through the promotion and tenure process, you have to publish, you have to write grants, and, you know, there is a certain quota there. So, and even the people, the young faculty members I mentor at UConn, you know, I'll spend time with them talking about their balance. And when I can see them getting too diversified, I reel them back in and, you know, hopefully young people entering the field can align with someone that can do that for them because it is so easy to get distracted and not be able to truly get confused. Um, So I I just think the focus on doing what you need to do is very important to keep telling yourself. Yeah, that that's a good point. And before we finish up, uh, last last question about tips for grant writing. How do you how do you write better grant proposals or get better ideas for your grant proposals? How how to get funding? What would be your tip? Yeah, again, sometimes, and I mean, it happened to me a little bit with serendipity. But I come to UConn, and Paul Thompson comes to Hartford Hospital. We're 20 miles down the road. And I, I get, that's how it began to happen. And, you know, there's some people at UConn um, that I've now collaborated with for a very, very long time. And it developed through conversations and mutual interests. We are fortunate at UConn and other universities, I think, have similar institutes or centers but um we we call it in chip they have great pre-award assistance one of their missions is to connect people with like ideas and they have workshops they have programs um and in fact a grant that was we just received in collaboration with Yale University and Dr. Declan Berry I met Declan, uh, I hate to say it, I was about 10 years ago through InChip. We tried the first time. One was scored favorably. It didn't work. We we kept trying, and that's my other thing, just 
keep writing, keep trying. Um, and we were finally awarded a five-year grant um, together. But if you can also seek out these people at the university and these support systems and read grants that have been successfully funded, that all helps. And then if you're fortunate enough to get in a situation where there's a very productive person that's willing to take people under their wing with common interests, then you're golden because you start getting pulled along and then eventually you're going to become more, more and more a champion of the group. Yeah, I, I think those are those are great, great advice, especially reading the grants application that have been uh been successful if you if you can get access to those but yeah we have discussed one hour so i think it's time to wrap up this was really nice discussion so thanks for taking the time for this podcast linda oh thank you for your interest and all your great questions i appreciate it Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.